Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Friends of the Quad in London, I'm Tom Keen in New York, and we celebrate today the Leader's Bookshelf. It is a book by Admiral James Stravitas of Tufts and the Fletcher School. And I'm going to tell you, Jim, it's totally original. It is beyond original, Admiral Stravitas. Congratulations uh, on the book. Chapter 2, Making Time for Reading. Before you go into many, many people in the military and what book changed their lives and is important to them for leadership, how do you make time for reading Admiral Stavitas uh, if we don't have the luxury of being stuck on a destroyer? It's uh, <laughs> Yeah, if you can't go out to sea for extended forward deployments, there are other things you can do, Tom. So I would start by saying you can uh, use your downtime productively. So often on an airplane, for example, we just kind of default to uh, a glass of scotch and a couple of movies. But, you know, that's incredibly valuable real estate. Secondly, when you are uh, traveling in the car, audiobooks are incredibly powerful. And I would say a, a third trick of the trade with reading is to read books quickly, um, obviously, but also to um, dive in deep when you find a book that really has meaning. So skim a lot of books in order to read powerfully a handful of books. Admiral, what was the strangest thing when you were writing the book? Is there a, a book that you saw over and over? I know I speak to a lot of CEOs here in the UK, and actually I'm surprised they always look at military books when talking about business. Yeah, one that jumps out for business people is uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, uh, who was an ancient strategist. And he talks a lot about uh, innovation, about cleverness, about trying to get behind your enemy, the jujitsu of war, which certainly all applies in business. We often forget, though, that Sun Tzu said, when on death ground, fight, which is about the determination you have to have as a CEO at times. Do people ask you a question of, of whether they, you know, they should be reading secrets because it's, it's now a bad thing being an intellectual or an academic? You know, I, I don't think reading books has gone out of style. As I uh, motor around and talk to uh, a wide variety of people, and that's one of the nice things about mm -hmm. being the dean of a graduate school, you get to speak to uh, people all around the world. People still read, and they want to exchange book ideas. And a great way to start any conversation is, what are you reading these days? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. And to dive into the, the book, I mentioned this earlier, Thomas Hayward, uh, one of our great admirals, and there's mm. there's memos from, from Ulysses Grant. He goes to World War II in Nimitz. I mean, and th 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 there's that fear, I think, in a lot of kids today not to go back into our history to find the books to read. There's something, I can't read a book that's 20 years old. My, the new book, John Tucker, I'm, I'm reading is Bernard Schwartz on the Supreme Court from 24 years ago. 
And yet it's like it was written yesterday. Mm. I think that's true of so many books. And I'll make another point, Tom, which is that a book you read in your 20s and get a lot out of at that point in time, say, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. I went back and read that book again in doing the Leader's Bookshelf and got an incredibly different experience out of it. So there's real power in reading a 19th century book, uh, and even one you've read in your youth, picking it up again. And now we go sensitive with James Stravitas. Page 143. Are you kidding me? A river runs through it? Norman McLean? Grog Johnson uh, recommended this one. Help yeah. me. Uh, a River Run Through It is a marvelous book about families. And part of a leader's job is life balance, Tom. And I bet many of your CEOs and senior business people listening want to try to understand how to attain a balance in life. Not everything is about uh, making money and uh, building your resume. And, and the, the novel, A River Runs Through It, is about a troubled family in Montana and how they work through some of the great challenges that impact them. I think it's uh, also just a spectacularly written book, like reading poetry page after mm-hmm. page. I, I like, you know, there, there's a definite theme, Admiral, when I look, go through your book, The Leader's Bookshelf, is that it's all about preparation. And so maybe it's also a, a good idea for a lot of businessmen to read books a little bit more like army generals because you can't leave anything to hope or chance. That's exactly right, Francine. And let's face it. Um, our lives are preparation, and we get a chance to build ourselves as leaders by the gifts we're given. Are you tall and good-looking, which I am not, uh, but do you get parents who nurture you and bring you along? Um, do you have experiences? But the one consistent thing you can do, you have control over, is to read and to read consciously to try and learn leadership as you read by using these books almost as simulators to put yourself in other leadership situations. It is all about preparation. When you look at the state of politics, but also the state of diplomacy around the world, can we actually look back at history and books on this, or is 2017 different? Mm -hmm. No, I think uh, I'll I'll give you two books that I think uh, provide marvelous lessons, one positive, one negative. Um, Winston Churchill's The Second World War, which is really a series of books, but it's, it's the story of coalition building and determination and overcoming enormous challenges. Um, very inspirational read. On the negative side, the current national security advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, wrote a book uh, about the Vietnam War called Dereliction of Duty, of the failure of the generals to speak truth to power. Um, Both of those books, I think, are examples of uh, stories that help us be better leaders. And now we go to the question that only matters to all listening Amos Davidas, how do we get our kids to read? What's the, what's the, what's the secret to getting them <laughs> off Minecraft? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I would say you have to talk books with your kids yep. and get, put good ideas of books in front of them. Secondly, use electronics. This is a generation that doesn't resonate like you and I do, Tom, to picking up a dusty volume of uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Um, but they're happy to pick up a Kindle and learn to read on that. You can also read very effectively on an iPhone. So give the kids electronic options for reading. And thirdly, use the tie-in to movies and videos. Um, What often sparks a young person is having seen a movie like Ender's Game, say, gosh, you like that movie. Why don't you read the novel? So there's three things you can try. 
I know I'm, I'm very European today. I feel very European. Where was Machiavelli in all of this? Did anyone mention the prince and Machiavelli? Um, Machiavelli is in our just outside the top 50, Francine, but uh, I think fell behind uh, Sun Tzu and the art of war, which is probably a metaphor for Asia and Europe these days. I want to go to one book, and we'll, we'll talk current events here with Admiral Mustavides after we celebrate the leader's bookshelf. And this goes right to the president. Lee's lieutenants, a study in command, Douglas South of Freedom, Freeman, absolutely classic World War II vintage book. General Conway gave this to you from the U.S. Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Boy, do we need some Lee's lieutenants right now. We do. And I'm going to throw right back at you, agreeing with you. Uh, the compliment to it is Doris Kearns Goodwin's just magisterial book on Lincoln's mm-hmm. Uh, team of rivals that he put together. Um, Boy, Lincoln has some powerful lessons for our president, I think. Um, A sense of humor, a sense of uh, humility, um, of reaching out across not only the aisle, but across personality. In a very important book, because at the time, Admiral Stavitas as a midshipman was on the monitor of the Merrimack. I can't remember (laughs) which one of the two. Uh, Admiral, one more book question before we get to the snub of NATO. Is this library on the cover of your book? Is this the Stravitas Library? (laughs) Don't I wish. No, that's the uh, library at Johns Hopkins University. Isn't it beautiful? It is gorgeous. It is. Yeah, when I first saw the photo, I thought it was an old British library, but it's right here in colonial America. Yeah, I know. And Professor Cole over at Columbia would talk of Johns Hopkins and Chicago as being two of our great institutions. Okay, let's get serious. You fell apart today on TV. What a snub. The Secretary of Treasury, of State rather, will not visit the NATO meetings, his first NATO meetings. And I guess he'll go on a junket to Russia or China. I don't know. Translate this for the IR community. What does it symbolize? Well, it's just a mistake. When you uh, when you begin a new administration, a new role, you want to kind of work from the inside out. You want to kind of begin with your closest allies and then out to your partners then out to your friends. Then having consolidated the base, a term a political administration ought to understand, you then start working with your opponents and those with whom you disagree. So it's not only, frankly, he's going to go to Russia potentially, but he's going to miss the meeting in order to have a meeting with President Xi at a summit with uh, President Trump. I just think it's a mistake. At a minimum, we ought to go to NATO and ask them to move the dates of the meeting. Uh, but to simply not attend, I think, is, a, is, is diplomacy 101 violation. Uh, what if this is game theory? Admiral, what if this is a starting point? As long as they pay into NATO, right, for now, they're not going anywhere. This would be a bargaining chip to make sure that they get a better deal or a better say. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the from the NATO side, that is just not going to be very well received. And it's worth knowing that, and I credit the Trump administration for this, since they took over, spending rates on defense in Europe have been going up and up. Um, this is not the time to cash that chip in. Now is the time to really show solidarity and respond to that first play by the Europeans. All right, but the Secretary of State has been, in the past couple of weeks, absent from several meetings with foreign leaders. Does this say that he's being cautious or this is a mistake, or does it mean that he doesn't have that much influence over foreign policy in Trump's administration? 
I think it's a bit of both, Francine, and I'll add a third, which is he's not being well-staffed. He doesn't have a deputy secretary of state. He has no, uh, no leadership below himself in that department right now. He's kind of home alone, and I think uh, the department wouldn't let him uh, make this kind of misstep. Help me here with the battle over the weekend of the press attending. You've had to put up with the press for years. I'm sure there's been some ugly moments. Um, I mean, there's a tradition to it. Is it a good tradition to have the press tag along? It absolutely is. And um, as a senior leader, I often took uh, small press pools, nothing like a sec def or a sec state. Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, inconvenient. It's occasionally annoying. Uh, sometimes they get the story slightly wrong. But wouldn't you rather have them inside the tent than outside trying to figure it out, trying to speculate, trying to work with leakers? Um, so I, I think that, uh, it, again, a mistake not to have the press uh, come along on these uh, trips. And I know Secretary Mattis, for example, has been bringing the press on his trip. I hope that Secretary Tillerson uh, yeah. does so as well. You mentioned team arrivals earlier. I mean, part of the problem here in getting warm bodies in Foggy Bottom is if you ever said anything negative about Mr. Trump, you're off the list, right? That's absolutely true. And then secondly, let's face it thus far, the fact that you're watching the current Secretary of State uh, not be invited to the White House frequently, not seeming to consult uh, on occasion, not coming to the big meetings. So I I think there's a significant morale problem in Foggy Bottom, and it's hard to recruit people to go into an organization that doesn't appear to be getting traction in Washington. That needs to be reversed because as a nation, we can't afford ineffective diplomacy any more than we can afford ineffective defense. But there must be someone, I don't know if you call it a dissenter or someone who criticizes the president behind closed door that he listens to. Is that his family? Is that his daughter, Ivanka? She's skiing in Aspen. Yeah, well, let's hope that's the case. And and I saw recently a correlation drawn between uh, the tweeting cycle uh, was much diminished during periods of time that Ivanka and Jared are around the president. Um, and let's hope that cabinet officials like Jim Mattis and John Kelly and Rex Tillerson over time can have influence on him as well. Um, these are strong individuals who I think will be unafraid to speak truth to power, but they got to get in the room. And I think that's where uh, Secretary Tillerson has had his challenges thus far. Um, Admiral, talk to me about the GOP. Is, is there a kind of, um, you know, stick and carrot uh, way of working where they say, look, President Trump, you need to follow us on diplomacy and actually not start a trade war with this country and this country. And in return, we'll give you more support for, I don't know if it's tax cuts or funding for some of the infrastructure projects. Does it work like that? Yes, it does. And you can see this tension in the GOP base in the international sphere right now. Um, Some in the GOP want to um, effectively build those walls, not just the one with Mexico, but tariff barriers, uh, return to the country, cut down our overseas military presence, whereas others, people like uh, Paul Ryan, Max Thornbury, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, are quite uh, internationally oriented and have good views on defense. That tension will play out in the domestic back and forth over the issues you just mentioned, Francine. Help us with the idea, the philosophy of our domestic debate on health care. We get to a vote Thursday onto a Senate where Steve Dennis says uh, the health bill has minimal chance to get through. 
And the basic idea is we need that money, that butter money, for our guns money. How do you filter that core question? I think that uh, it's not an on and off switch, Tom. We don't um, simply become a highly militarized nation at the expense of domestic policy. Um, it's a rheostat, and I think for the last eight years, the rheostat's been uh, dialed uh, strongly in the direction of butter. It needs to come back a bit to guns, but I want to make a point about guns. It's not just guns. It's uh, State Department and its budget. It's foreign aid. It is all of the international programs. That helps create security. So you have to dial that rheostat a bit. That's why there is a defense increase. But at the same time... <clears throat> As a nation, um, we have big problems, and it's not just health. It's our deficit. Um, and I think that what's needed here, back to books, is the team of rivals approach, the ability to reach across the yeah. aisles. If we, if we dial those rheostats individually, it's a lot less painful than whipsawing back and forth between administrations. Uh, James Trevitas, thank you so much. Uh, with Tufts Fletcher School, I can't say enough, folks, about the leaders Bookshelf, Admiral James Stavitas, uh never retired, and our Manning Angel as well, uh, on uh, a, a great way to find a lot of other books quickly and also get a core message, an important message from each of these uh, uh, books, some of them very painful books about ordeal of military combat, the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant in here, um, this kind of war uh, from the 60s, T.R. Fahrenbach. Uh, is, is mentioned in many others. James Javidis with a successful effort, The Leader's uh, Bookshelf. This is a wonderful treat. This is why we do Bloomberg Surveillance. His book is classic. It is the banker to the world. His name is William Rhodes. If you don't know the name, he was banker to the world for Citigroup and Citibank decades ago. His public service to Brown University uh, speaks volumes. Uh, Bill Rhodes, you're the only one I wanted to talk to, maybe James Diamond, about David Rockefeller passing away, dying at 101 years old. What was David Rockefeller like as you were a young banker at Citigroup? Well, first of all, David was a great man, and uh, I was privileged to uh, first meet him when I came back from Latin America uh, with Citibank uh, uh, almost 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago in 1977, and we shared a mutual interest in Latin America. Uh, David, uh, obviously, everybody knows, was a world statesman, particularly in finance, one of the great bankers and financiers of our age. But he had a, uh, he had a particular love uh, for Latin America, and he founded the Council of the Americas, the America Society, in 1965. And he got me in very involved with that. I became chairman later on for uh, nine years, and David uh, was the uh, founder and uh, chairman for a number of years, and he did he did tremendous work on improving relations between yeah. the United States and Latin America. He was patrician, and, and and he was distant, and there was discretion and control at every moment. And behind that was prodigious economic abilities. He was a PhD in economics from Chicago. As as a kid, he actually did the academic work, didn't he? 
Exactly, but I, I think his lasting memory will be uh, what he believed in, in the sense of uh, the relationships uh, between the United States and the rest of the world, uh, and particularly in, in, with my personal experience, uh, was what he did with Latin America. He is a revered figure in Latin America uh, and always uh, connected uh, the United States uh, with Latin America and our culture, our trade, uh, and uh, did tremendous work philanthropically for all areas of the world, but particularly I would uh, suggest that uh, Latin America, and he founded a center in his name for Latin studies at Harvard. I mean, he, he was also really a confidant of uh, world leaders from Deng Xiaoping in China to Nelson Mandela in South Africa. What would he be advising President Trump? Well, I, would, I, I think what he would be advising tr President Trump at this point in time is to make sure that we don't get in a series of trade wars uh, around the world because he always believed that uh, free and fair markets were very, very important for the growth of the world economy and had been always a big supporter of the International yeah. Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Uh, and uh, he dedicated right. his life to these relationships. You didn't apologize for being an American banker, and I would suggest Mr. Rockefeller and his disciples over at the uh, evil firm uh, Chase didn't apologize for being capitalists and bankers. We've got a lot of bankers now after this crisis reticent about trumpeting capitalism, about traveling abroad, about showing the American banking flag. How do we get back to pride in banking? That is a, a key question, Tom, which you and I have discussed uh, quite a lot. As you know, I've done a lot of work on, on, uh, on, on bank culture, uh, and uh, I think it's, it, it's key. And David was a good example of that because he believed that he should use that platform to improve uh, relationships around the world, to, to make the world closer. Uh, and uh, I think he achieved that, and I think that uh, uh, this is what, the banking community ought to be doing, trying to help its, its, its communities to bring back the trust in banking, which David was a, a good example of, because somewhere along the way, I think uh, uh, in the United States, Europe, and other parts of the world, trust has been lost in, in banking, and mm -hmm. uh, we must get back to those basic yeah. uh, thoughts of, uh, you know, a, a banker's there to help the community, uh, and that was number one, and that certainly was uh, the way David looked at things. Bill Rhodes, thrilled to have you with us today. Mr. Rhodes, of course, the author of Banker to the World and was City uh, a Bank for years. Uh, William Rhodes, in honor of David Rockefeller. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. This is a wonderful moment to speak to Paul Quincy. We were talking with Bill Rhodes earlier about David Rockefeller and discretion and being proper. That's what you do at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, where you're in the greatest bull market since time uh, began. And with, within that, Paul Quincy, if I look at the equity market, the basic emotion is so many people have missed this bull market. How do we catch up? Well, one way to catch up is to 
look outside the US and look at markets that have not yet been in the greatest bull market of all time, where valuations are still more depressed, and where I think really importantly, we're seeing actually finally profitability really beginning to improve. So if you just look at the returns over the last five years, then you've compounded a mid-teens rate of gain in the S&P. That's a tremendous result right. by historical standards. The compound return in US dollars on emerging markets over the same period, 1%. The compound return on European equities, again, if you measure in US dollars, around 5%. So those are not yet anything like the type of numbers that people feel like they've missed very much on. And yet when we look at those regions, we see valuations, as you'd expect, looking pretty reasonable, but also profitability really starting to improve in a much more convincing way than we've seen for some time. Mm. Paul, what is the one thing that can go wrong in Europe, though? Is it the right time if you like European equities? Should we not wait until most of the big elections have been and gone because they could be potentially life-changing for the Eurozone? Absolutely. And I think most people are waiting until the elections have come and gone. And a lot of money is sitting on the sidelines while the fundamentals continue to improve. The problem is, of course, once you know what's going to happen, then it'll be priced in fairly quickly. So I think in a diversified portfolio and with an eye to risk, it's worth putting some money to work now and rather than waiting for everything to become absolutely clear. I can't claim to know exactly how all of these election results are going to play out. Of course, nobody does. Well, Francine is in charge of that. Yes, we'll ask her then. <laughs> the crystal but, ball. <laughs> yes, but I do think that if maybe a year ago investors were a little bit overconfident in their ability to predict, for example, the vote in Brexit or the outcome of the presidential election here, then maybe now people are a little bit underconfident and they're ignoring opinion polls and ignoring the fact that I think it would require a much bigger shift in, in, in opinion than we saw in either of those two instances to have a genuine anti-euro upset in, in, in France. Of course, it could still happen, but perhaps uh, the, the risks of that are being a little bit, over, uh, a little bit overestimated at the moment in markets. Paul, do you think that economists are, are too optimistic about Europe? It seems, uh, you know, when you're on the ground, I'm Italian, I go out there and people are, are really unhappy. You have huge youth unemployment. And then when you look at the numbers, and Tom, we had an economist on a little bit earlier on on TV, they say, but it's getting better. You know, growth over on the Eurozone is around one and a half and two percent. What are they missing? Growth does seem to be getting a little bit better. I wouldn't, exa I wouldn't want to <coughs> exaggerate just how, how fast it is. But growth is appearing, uh, improving a little bit at the margin. But re we're really focused on companies. And, of course, corporate profits are not the same thing as GDP. There's a lot more leverage in the European corporate sector to what's happening globally than is the case in many other yeah. regions. Well, this is important. I, I mean, a multi we, I think most of our audience has a real understanding of a blue-chip multinational in the United States. Is a blue-chip multinational the same beast in Europe? If anything, they're a little more multinational. So I think that the very fact that the European economies haven't been terribly exciting over the last decade or so has encouraged many European companies mm -hmm. to invest heavily abroad. And as they did that, they picked up a fair amount of exposure to emerging markets. So in the downturn that we saw in the emerging economies that lasted until yeah. the middle of or early last year, they were unusually exposed to that. And that really hurt profitability. Well, but it me, won't always hurt. Let me ask a delicate uh, question, Paul Quincy. Are they going to become more Anglo-Saxon. I mean, that's sort of the hope and prayer, not only of of retail and people that you know, are trying to catch up here, but institutional as well. The continental multinationals, they've got their moments, but they've also got a cultural heritage. Is that going to shift in the next number of years? Yes and no. I th there are signs that it's shifting a little bit. 
Uh, I don't think you need an enormous shift in corporate behavior to have a much better outcome in terms of profits I yeah. in the near term. So if, you, if you've been a European investor, you've been disappointed pretty much every year for the last five years. Typically, at the start of the year, the consensus says earnings will grow by 10%. And by the end of the year, you find out they've actually slightly shrunk. I really do think this time is different. This year, we will see, and we're already seeing it, proper, uh, real profits growth coming through. Longer term, we do see some uh, changes in behavior to be more shareholder friendly. But there's a long, long way to go before you see, for example, the kind of share buyback activity that's been such a critical component of the bull market here in the right. U.S. It really hasn't spread to Europe in any convincing way yet, despite the fact that, of course, with bond yields so low in Europe, the advantages of levering up your balance sheet a bit and buying back stock at lower prices are even more compelling mm -hmm. than they are to the typical U.S. corporate here. But Paul, are earnings really on the upside or is it just on cost cutting? And these animal spirits still have to take, you know, real place with investment. You can feel better about life, but unless you put money on a new project, it's just hot air. Yeah, I think a number of things will conspire to help earnings this year. So currency movements help a little more revenue growth, uh, both in Europe and in the rest of the world. European companies have a, a surprisingly large degree of commodity exposure. As we know, the commodity cycle seemed to trough out about a year ago and is looking generally better now. And then, of course, we come to the banks that have been uh, such a focus for investors in Europe. But where? You, there, are, there are leaders and laggards, but on average, European banks have been raising capital, are getting healthier, and are, mm -hmm. are, are pretty attractively priced as well, for that matter. And now with Paul Quincy, we go where we dare to tread and getting him in trouble with the general counsel of the J.P. Morgan <laughs> Banking Company. Is everybody going to move to Dublin? That's the, that's the zeitgeist today at Bloomberg is Bank A, Bank B, Bank C, Bank D. We're gonna, you know, we've looked at our European grid, and we're going to move to Dublin. You've lived this with Schroeder's, with Citibank, now with J.P. Uh, Morgan. Are you going to move to Dublin? So until we know what rules we're dealing with, you didn't I know don't this think... was going to happen, oh, did Tom. you? Yeah, yeah. So get me out of here. <laughs> look, until until we know, uh, until we know what the rules look like, it's very very hard to say, isn't Thank it? You. It's really it's just an extraordinary amount of uncertainty. So uh, uh, I, I think at this point, lots of different options are on the table. My litmus paper here is the middle child doing the, you know, you're abroad, going to every city every weekend, called up drunk from Dublin and said, hey, I love this city. Are the young troops of J.B. Morgan going to want to migrate from London to Dublin? But D Dublin is a great city. There are many great cities in <laughs> Europe, too. But I think in general... People, particularly in sort of mid-late careers, would rather stay where they are. We just have to see whether or not that's going to be possible uh, when we see uh, what, exactly what rules we're dealing with. You got through that Good very answer. nicely. Paul why are we Quincy? sending Tom? Tom, where are you moving to? I'm moving to Dublin. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul Quincy, thank you so much. J.P. Morgan Asset Manager. Mr. Diamond, be nice, nice on him when he gets back to the uh, office. Wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much. process is to look at a really interesting research note from Capital Economics. Neil Shearing uh, joins us, the chief emerging, um, emerging markets economist for Capital. Neil, I thought your note was very provocative. 
And it really comes down to something I think most Americans have missed. Mexico has leverage. They have bargaining power. How possibly could they have power against the mighty uh, United States of America? Well, this is true. I think that there's, there's two areas where they have power. Um, in economic terms, they, they, they hold quite a lot of sway, particularly over agricultural import, quite a lot of agricultural imports from the U.S. And where do those agricultural imports come from? Midwestern states that helped to elect President Trump. The second point is they hold political sway. The U.S. needs Mexico on side, the war on drugs, particularly also immigration through Central America to the U.S. So I don't think it's quite right to say that the U.S. holds all the cards when it, when it comes to renegotiating NAFTA and, and trading relations. Um, I, I, I look at this and I go, how long is the timeline? I mean, we're looking at Brexit in Europe is being months, quarters, even into years. How long will the NAFTA timeline be? I think it's going to be years rather than months. Um, I suspect something's going to get kicked off quite soon, but it's going to go on for a long time. Trade deals take a long while to negotiate, and unless, particularly if they want to do something substantive. If it's not going to be substantive, then perhaps it can get wrapped up this year. The issue, though, is that economic cycles and trade negotiation cycles don't necessarily coincide with political cycles. We've got U.S. midterms at the end of next year. We've got uh, Mexican presidential elections at the middle of next year. So it's quite possible that, that all of this gets bound up in political cycles and held back too. I think it's going to be quite tricky to get something substantive done. You know, I, I, I look at NAFTA. When, when, when we look at NAFTA, we look at it in very simplistic terms. Beneath the headline data on NAFTA, what is the distinction or attribute you would make visible to our listeners? I, the, the main thing, and actually this is the whole discourse around trade, is stop thinking about trade in terms of deficits and surpluses and balances. That's not how a country benefits from trade. Uh, you, your benefits from trade, the gains from trade, come through the exchange of goods and services. And the fact that the U.S. or Mexico can then uh, move into its areas of comparative advantage, specialize where, you know, in, in production that where it has a comparative advantage. So it's not really about how big Mexico's surplus is with the U.S. or how big China's surplus is with the U.S. It's about does trade allow the U.S. to specially concentrate in areas of production where it holds a comparative advantage? Uh, and that's where the gains from trade come from. And actually, when you look mm -hmm. at it, Mexico has not been that big a beneficiary from NAFTA. It's seen a bit of an uptick in productivity growth since yeah. NAFTA has been introduced, but it's not been that big. Have you been surprised by peso strength, 22 to 19 on Mexican peso? That's impressive. <laughs> It is impressive, and obviously it's not just the peso. The peso has been one of the biggest beneficiaries, but all EM currencies, indeed most currencies, EM and DM, um, are up against the dollar um, this year. It seems to me that we're in a bit of a holding pattern in financial markets. We're waiting to see who bears influence in in economic policy terms within the White House. Is it uh, the Liberals, Gary Cohen, Wilbur Ross, or is it the Hawks, Navarro, perhaps Steve Bannon too? Uh, at the moment, it looks like we've kind of backed away from the more immediate hawkish um, signs that we were seeing on the campaign trail, and that's given a bit of support to, to risk assets. Thanks so much. We're going to have to keep it short today, too short. Neil Shearing with a smart note from Capital Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.